true crime has always been fascinating to many people. Television shows like Unsolved Mysteries, Snapped, 48 Hours, and even fictional shows that are loosely based on true crime stories like Law and Order, NCIS, SVU, the list goes on and on, have always been supremely fascinating to a large and dynamic audience. And if you're a true crime fan and you've never listened to the Serial Podcast with Sarah Koenig, then stop listening to this and go hit play on season one of Serial, where she dives into great detail about the case I'm about to cover from a less intricate but more intuitive perspective. I would invite you again to listen to Undisclosed after Serial so that you can hear from a friend of Adnan Syed's, the person convicted of Heyman Lee's murder, the subject of today's episode. Rabia Chaudhry, friend turned attorney because of his conviction, is one of three hosts of Undisclosed. Both of these are fantastic podcasts with hosts who have done their due diligence in journalistic research and really carry a weight of professionalism that this podcast just does not have. And that's not a dig at this podcast. I'm I'm a one-woman show here. And so, however, most shows that cover the murder of Heyman Lee do so in such a way that it talks more about whether or not Adnan should have actually been convicted of her murder, whether or not he got a fair trial, the information left out of the trial, and the manipulated witness testimony that has led to the conviction of Adnan Syed, and the acceptance from Hay's family that her murderer has been put away. The story of Heyman Lee and what happened to her, rather than could Adnan have really done it, if you're here to see what I think about that, I'll tell you right now. I'm not telling you until later. Both stories are very important, but one story is told less often. And I think it's important that we memorialize Hay and what happened to her. I'm your host, Catherine Gelvin, true crime enthusiast and psychic medium. If you're looking to book your own private reading with me, you can do so at CatherineAnnIntuitive.com. I offer 30, 45, and 60-minute readings via Zoom or by phone. Or if you're someone who prefers a more regular check-in, you can grab an annual package with four one-hour readings that are all recorded and sent to you after our session, as well as weekly check-ins via text, so that you can ask anything you'd prefer and get a little bit more guidance before your next session. There are only 10 of these available per calendar year, and one of them has already been scooped up. I take no more than one new client for that package per month. May is spoken for, and I am here and open and ready for someone for the month of June. But anyway, murder and mediumship is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way accusing anyone of any crime. I am merely giving my perspective as a psychic medium who may connect with the victim on the other side or feel into what happened using my gifts. If you have a case you'd like me to feel into, please email it to KatherineGelvin at KatherineAnnIntuitive.com. It may take a while for me to get back to you as, again, one woman show with three small children of my own and we just moved, but I will definitely get back to you. Who was Heyman Lee? It's sadly, though, not shockingly difficult to find information on who exactly she was outside of her murder. And this could be because even for being such a publicized case, her family has remained barely private, which is absolutely understandable. And this was also just at the beginning of the use of cell phones as the widespread usage I'm speaking of. And prior to social media, I can only imagine the pain and the difficulty that has resurfaced with such continuous coverage of their daughter's murder pointed in the direction of her supposed killer. 
I'm not the only one who felt this way, though. It seems few others have reined any focus in on hay. Elizabeth Donnelly of Flavor Wire does so with depth and even anger that can be sensed over the lack of portrayal of hay in Koenig's cereal. Most of, and I just want to make it very clear that I am not slamming cereal in any way. It pretty much was the beginning of an obsession of true crime podcasting as we know it today. And I, I would like to say that, first of all, her journalistic integrity and the work that she does, is it's freaking incredible. It's a, a multi-award winning show. She is a multi-award winning journalist, and she brought a lot of attention to the case, which is fantastic. But most of the information I could find on Hay came from Donnelly and from the site Refinery29, both of which, of course, as you know, will be linked in the show notes. Hay was born in 1980 and immigrated from South Korea to Baltimore, Maryland as a preteen to live with her grandparents and her mother and her brother. When she was around 16 years old, though, her mom moved her and her younger brother, Young, to California to live with her mother's fiancé. That engagement wouldn't last very long, though, and after less than a year, Hay's family moved back to Baltimore to be closer to extended family once again. Lee was an incredibly ambitious magnet school student, not only working an after-school job at LensCrafters as she desired to go on to be an optician, but she also played field hockey, lacrosse, and managed the boys' wrestling team at Woodlawn High School. And as if that isn't already a full agenda, she was a member of Ecology Club, French Club, and Students Against Destructive Decisions. She was also relied heavily on in her family as almost another adult running errands and, and picking up younger cousins, and she had a lot of responsibility. But friends, teachers, and coaches described her as someone who was always smiling, always encouraging others, showing love for others, and always being as kind as anyone could be. She went the extra mile in athletics and in academics, set to graduate with honors, and a member of a number of academic clubs, as we mentioned, and she was extremely helpful to her, her family as well. In fact, the day that she disappeared, she was supposed to be picking up her six-year-old cousin from daycare, but she never showed up. On January 13th, 1999, Hay left school by three o'clock in the afternoon to pick up her younger cousin, which was supposed to happen by 3.15. This is only a 15 minute or so window, and we know she never made it there. But there are so many holes in between the time she left school and the day that her body was discovered in Leakin Park, a popular dumping ground for homicide victims. When Hay didn't show, her younger brother immediately started calling her friends to see if anyone had seen or heard from her. And when no one could offer any insight, her parents did not waste any time in calling the Baltimore City Police. By 6.30, police reached out to Adnan. This is her ex-boyfriend who had said the last he had seen her was after her classes ended at school. And then they reached out to her current boyfriend, Don, a LensCrafter co-worker, who they didn't get a hold of until about 1.30 in the morning and said he had not seen her. My understanding is that it took them until then to get a hold of him despite numerous attempts. Now, in this is, excuse me, in this instance, and I, and I want to say this right away in this case, because I think that there are a lot of fingers pointed at different people who are named in this case as um, persons of public interest, not necessarily legal interests. There are a lot of fingers pointed and there are a lot of accusations made. I don't believe that Don had anything to do with her disappearance. He hadn't reached out to the family 
or the police after she didn't show up at work or to see him after work that evening. And it was brought up on Undisclosed that maybe Don didn't see their, quote, relationship as being the same level of commitment or sincerity as Hay did. After all, Hay was 18 and Don was 22. And I can totally see it this way. And he would, and I really like to offer again that I don't think he had anything to do with her death, her disappearance. I think he was completely innocent and in no way involved whatsoever. I also want to say that in this case, I'm going to be pointing out a lot of spaces where I can't intuitively feel into anything because I'm, I've already read and heard so much about this case. I was asked by a number of people to cover this one. So I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to tell you right now that when you know too much already, it's really hard to, to pull into that intuition and only feel intuitively without having any sort of, we'll call it like human insight kind of guiding what it is that you think you're getting intuitively. So Adnan wasn't necessarily the first person that the police had reached out to though. They had been in contact with numerous friends of Hayes in an attempt to find her, including Aisha Pittman, her best friend. I was even surprised to hear how quickly they accepted her as a missing person rather than just a misbehaved teenager. They were looking for her with, within hours of her disappearance, and when Officer Adcock arrived at the Lee residence, her brother handed her diary over, hoping that it would be of service to them. In that diary was a phone number that Young had assumed would be connected to her new boyfriend, Hay. Excuse me, to Hay's new boyfriend, Don. But it would, in fact, be her ex-boyfriend, Adnan Sayed, who had just got a cell phone earlier that day, I believe. As far as we can gather multiple sources, as if you're familiar with this case, you'll know about the numerous discrepancies in reports. On the 13th, around 2.20, she had told her ex-boyfriend Adnan that she couldn't give him a ride when he had asked because she had something else to do. After picking her cousin up, she was supposed to work at Lens Crashers from 6 to 10. But as we already know, she didn't show up for her shift. And after that, she was supposed to see her new boyfriend, Don, also the Lens Crafter employee, whose mother managed that location. I've heard other sources say it was his mother's girlfriend. One source I heard say that. I, I've, I'm pretty sure it was his mother. Regardless, it doesn't matter. It was someone who would have been very close to him in a way that, I mean, you'll hear this when you go listen to Serial. They'll say how the only information that they received from Don was later they went back to ask for kind of like a time card or something. And all they got was the manager vouching for him, but the manager turns out to be like his mom or his mother's girlfriend, depending on the source. So sources weren't properly vetted at all in this investigation. Not at all. We talked about how Hay was supposed to go pick up her cousin on the 13th. Well, her 1998 gray Nissan Sentra was also nowhere to be found. Property around Don's home was searched and to no avail. He was followed up with by another sergeant, Joe O'Shea. And this time, this is when he lets them know that he was with Hay on the 12th, the evening before the day of her disappearance. And that after she got home from his house, which she had left around 10.30 p.m., they were on the phone until about 3 a.m., Hay had been upset about an argument with her mom about breaking curfew as well as phone rules, ironically, well up into super early hours of the morning on the phone. And I remember being a teenager and being on AOL Instant Messenger and hearing my mom walk to the top of the stairs and go, Catherine, Anne, <laughs> it was time to go to bed. <laughs> I was 
always up until like three o'clock in the morning, also a good student. And I think that that makes it more difficult for parents sometimes when you know your, your kid's doing okay in school, they're doing great, in fact. So do these rules bend? Do they not? And I'm not going to get into all the details of Don leaving out information about his shift with lens crafters or working at a different store than usual on the day of her disappearance because, again, intuitively, I don't really believe he was involved. I do think it's interesting that family all says there were really no issues, but a couple of sources talk about how she was having issues with her mom. But again, this doesn't sound like anything other than normal teenage rebellion, and I'll get into that a little bit later too. But I believe whether he was truly at work or not, still, he had nothing to do with it. Regardless of his lack of involvement, it is worth noting that police never followed up with him for proof of his alibi, like a time card verifying co-workers that he had been at work, as he claimed to be, he simply took his word for it, and then the managers, which just doesn't seem thorough at all. On January 27th, police talked to Hay's friend Debbie Warren, who said when she last saw Hay on the 13th, it was around 3 p.m. near the high school gym and that Hay told her she was on her way to meet up with Don at the mall. Again, never made it there. Though Debbie herself did not witness Hay physically leaving the school then, a few days later on February 1st, police spoke to the school sports trainer, Ines Butler, who also mentioned how Hay had been upset about things in her home life. Intuitively, I believe this really was around her growing responsibilities and animosity around them. From what I can feel or see, or even what I've read, Hay was expected to be very independent with a lot of responsibility, but also received no freedom in return for her incredible responsibility. And I feel like it was around this time that she was starting to stand up against that, rebelling and deciding just to suffer the consequences as it was unlikely her car or anything would really be taken away or her pager, anything like that, because she needed these things to help with the family anyway. It's just my two cents though. On February 9th, 1999, and just before I go on, I do also feel like this, her not showing up exactly where she was supposed to be, it almost feels like, again, a smaller act of rebellion, but that she was on her way to that daycare. I really believe she was headed there. She was on her way there. Whether or not she was upset with her mom, she does not strike me as the type who would have just left her little six-year-old cousin there waiting. That's so traumatizing. So on February 9th, 1999, Hay's body was found in Legan Park, as we previously stated, a popular dumping ground for homicide victims. Remember, we're in Baltimore here, where anti-snitch culture is huge, police corruption is all too common, and crime is super high. At this point, it's believed that they're already looking at Adnan, but it's unclear. However, on February 12th, Baltimore City Police received an anonymous tip that pointed them in the direction of Adnan. The way in which Hay's body was discovered is peculiar, though, in and of itself. She was discovered by a man commonly referred to as Mr. S. Mr. S. was a groundskeeper at Copen State University in Baltimore and was working on a project that he had already been working on, or at least was aware of for a few days prior. But on this particular day, he decided that after eating his lunch, he needed to drive all the way home to his own home to pick up a plane a tool for shaving down wood so that like doors and and things that have to be squared like fit into place. And this was, this was nothing that was really of importance in the days prior where this job had been assigned to him or anything. But this particular day, it was very important. The school didn't have one on site and he wanted to get his work done on it that day. 
So he drove a 15-minute drive just one way to get the plane to get the tool, and then a 15-minute drive back. However, Mr. S. decided to grab a 22-ounce Budweiser before returning to work. Reliable employee, I'm, I'm seeing. Or on his way into work, I should say, because he drank it in the car. Before even consuming the whole thing, though, he pulled over because he had to go to the bathroom so badly. He pulled over crossing a two-lane highway and then walked over 100 feet into the park and went to relieve himself, which is when he found Hay's body sticking partially up out of the dirt. From there, he drove back to work and called the chief of security, who then called the police. Mr. S. showed the homicide detectives, Greg McGillivray and William Ritz, where he had found the body, which would soon be identified as Heyman Lee. She was buried parallel to a fallen tree near a stream on her right side, with her left arm bent at a 90-degree angle behind her back. Possibly as it was held behind her back to keep her pinned down as she was killed, that's just the image that I'm getting. Her right arm laying underneath her head, bent at the elbow with her forearm in hand pointing upward and sticking out of the dirt and leaves. There was a larger rock laying on top of her arm, seemingly to me at least, an effort to keep her arm buried beneath the soil. Intuitively, I feel whoever left her there wasn't too concerned as most who were from that area would know that this was a huge dumping ground and not only that, Baltimore police didn't have a great record for closing homicide cases. Hayes' bra was pulled up, leaving her breasts exposed, and her skirt set over her waist so that you could see her underwear and pantyhose. It would later be determined that she had been strangled to death by hand, but also had evidence of blunt force trauma to the right back and right side of her head. Police did canvas the area and collect various pieces of what could have been evidence or could have been coincidentally nearby, like a used condom, an empty liquor bottle a section of clothesline, and various feathers that had collected on the tree that she was partially buried near. They also casted the tire tracks that were nearby the scene, and it would seem that due diligence was being done as they were absolutely processing the crime scene, but the incredible injustice and injustices and failures of the police department would come in the following days, where witnesses were left unpursued and stories from others began to change with each passing day. Though she had evidence of blunt force trauma and manual strangulation, there were no signs of a struggle or that she fought back, and I'm going to tell you soon why I think this kind of hits even more in line with what I intuitively believe happened to Hay. Four days later, police requested phone records from AT&T for Adnan's cell phone. On February 28th, Adnan was arrested by Baltimore City Police, he was 17 years old, for the murder of Heyman Lee. I am not going to get into the vast amount of details surrounding how it can almost be proven that the police bullied Adnan Syed's friend, acquaintance, Jay Wilds, into testifying against him. That they can be heard in interview tapes tapping on the table every time Jay starts to get confused or loses track of what he's clearly being coached to say. Jay had prior trouble with law enforcement, and I believe wholeheartedly that Jay was threatened by Baltimore police, one of the United States' most notoriously corrupt police departments. In fact, if you Google United States' most corrupt police departments, Baltimore is one of seven that comes up. Through a series of trials, mistrials, and appeals, Adnan Syed was ultimately convicted of the murder of Heyman Lee and sentenced to life in prison, plus 30 years. 
He was denied bail during the trial for an unsubstantiated fear that he would flee to Pakistan, where the U.S. would have no power to extradite him. He was essentially the only suspect that police pursued to prove his guilt. And this unsubstantiated fear, you can find in multiple sources as well, that he didn't even have a valid passport at the time. He had nothing. There was no way he was going to Pakistan. He was born and raised in the United States, too. He didn't know Pakistan. It's just, it's, it's quite infuriating. The investigation was far from thorough. Notes were lost, files were missing or destroyed, and Adnan was a Muslim boy at only 17 in a country where anti-Muslim rhetoric was already strong and only going to get stronger by 2001. Intuitively, the police used a person of color and the fear he had from the threats they made to pin the crime on an easy suspect, the ex-boyfriend. Their star witness was someone who was known to sell drugs and was known to be dishonest and even had his story changed multiple times over the course of pre-trial, the trial itself, and even in the years following the trial. Did Adnan kill Heyman Lee? I don't believe that he did. And if you want to decide for yourself what you believe, please, please check out Undisclosed, Serial Podcast, Season 1, Murderish, The Murder of Heyman Lee, a fantastic job covering the murder of Heyman Lee and, and directing it in more of a way that covers what happened to Hay and the countless others who will divulge details upon details over multiple episodes that I just don't have the time for in one episode. Adnan is falsely imprisoned as far as I can feel. And while that in and of itself is a tragedy, I do believe he will be exonerated at one point or another. What I can see about what happened to Hay isn't much other than feeling and seeing her getting struck over the back of the head, getting either back into or out of her car, and then being slumped over in the seat as she was driven to her murderer's home. But even in calling it a home, it feels like a dilapidated structure, maybe an abandoned house or building, or a place where you would be shocked to see that someone lives the way that they do in that building. I believe it was there that we would find reason for finding her bra pulled over her breast and her skirt being bunched up. I feel panic and confusion, and I feel her waking up from being hit and then being strangled because she was waking up. Was she sexually assaulted? I do believe that she was, but I also believe that it was while she was knocked out, and as she had started to wake, I believe she was strangled. I don't really think that Jay knew more than what the police told him to know, and I don't think he's prepared to risk ever coming out about that truth. Will the real killer be caught? I see them having to exonerate Adnan or to let him go in whatever circumstances that looks like, but I believe that Hayes' killer is already dead. I believe he either died in prison or died while going into and out of the system. He isn't someone that they ever even looked at. I don't believe he crossed their radar. Hay was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and Adnan happened to be the wrong ex-boyfriend. And there are, I'm sure, a lot of questions from serial fans or undisclosed fans as this is a hugely popular case because of serial. However, like I said, it's too much to dive into for one episode. So if y'all want to send more questions in about the case itself, please feel free to, and perhaps I'll do like a mini episode answering those questions specifically. As far as I'm concerned, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that people make when looking back over this case is whether is is who from the case was involved in it. And I think that 
a number of these people were involved. They were questionable characters at best to begin with, and most teenagers are. So it's not really all that shocking, but Baltimore police really dropped the ball here. They dropped the ball, and they're unwilling to make any of it right because, I mean, they'd have to admit fault there, right? So as for now, be safe, be kind, be loving, and I'll be here next week with a new episode of Murder Mediumship. Mediumship.